I have been uh, refereeing this week. It's district tournament time. Uh, this past week have been the district tournaments uh, in the region. And so I've been refereeing a couple nights. And, and the best thing about this time of year in high school basketball is, is people that don't go to a basketball game all year will come to the district tournaments. And, which is great because it's packed and, and it makes for a fun atmosphere. And so I've had, I've had some really fun games the last few nights and it's been just a great atmosphere. And I was thinking about that in terms of how we prepare for worship. Um, you know, they go to the games expecting that this is going to be a good ball game. You go to district finals, you're thinking this is the two best teams in the district. This is going to be a good ball game and they're expecting that. And so I hope that's how we come to church. We're expecting that this is going to be a great time of worship together it's going to be a you know we come expecting ready for the lord to act on our behalf the other thing i was thinking about in that and bobby mentioned it um this morning just a a few minutes ago is that people during the district tournament that's the first time they come to a basketball game all year and somebody will say hey it's the district tournament it's coming up you going well easter is coming up in just a few weeks and there will be people that will show up to church on easter sunday that they won't come any other time of the year and so be putting that seed out there right now. Hey, Easter's coming up. Hey, you going to come to church? We, we've got Good Friday service coming up. Good Friday is going to be a great service. Bob Russell, uh, uh, the retired minister from Southeast Christian, is going to be here to speak for us uh, that night. We'll have Easter egg hunt Saturday morning and, and then sunrise service here for Easter Sunday and then Easter worship. And it's going to be a great uh, weekend of, of just worshiping. And I'm expecting the Lord to move on our behalf. And I'm praying that... We'll be putting that seed out there right now. Hey, Easter's coming. Easter's coming. You're going to be here. You're going to be here. You're going to be here. And don't just, hey, are you going to be here? Bring them with you. You know, that's the great thing. You know, if you, if you invite somebody, they might come. If you bring somebody, they will come, right? They'll, they'll be here. And so I'm, I'm praying that, that uh, we will be prepared for the Lord to move on our behalf uh, in that time. But also just in the weeks leading up to it as well. We've been in a series for the last few weeks called All In. We're approaching the end of that series. We've got a couple more weeks, but uh, we are approaching the end of that series. And the last couple of weeks, we've talked about what it looks like for us to be all in. And we've talked uh, through a couple of different passages, scripture, so, some stories from the Old Testament, some stories from the New Testament, and just the, the accounts of, of, of the life of people who went all in. And today we're going to look at, at another guy that went all in, but I would really encourage you, if you missed last week, to go back and, and catch last week's uh, service. If you want to watch it on Facebook or the, just catch the, the message, I would encourage you to go back and look at that because we had a powerful service last week, and, and it's been a very powerful and moving service so far today as well, but, but it's kind of just, I feel like we're just kind of laying the groundwork and, and we're, we're building toward, toward that, that Easter moment almost. And so, so today we're going to continue in our series all in. In 1948, 1948, I'm going to butcher this name, okay? <clears throat> Korzak Zilkowski. I have no idea if that's how you actually say it, but that's what it looks like to me. Korzak Zilkowski was commissioned by Lakota Chief Henry Standing Bear to design a, a mountain uh, the carving of the late great war leader Crazy Horse. Now, the irony in that is that Crazy Horse himself would never allow himself to be photographed, and so there are no actual photographs of him. I don't know if you knew that or not, but he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't allow himself to be photographed, and so you've got to kind of wonder how he would feel about a statue, a 563-foot statue, uh, 
carved of himself into the side of the Black Hills, how he might actually feel about that. But, but anyway, Zilkowski was commissioned to do this, and so he invested more than three decades of his life into carving this larger-than-life statue. That, and I didn't realize this until I was preparing for this. The Crazy Horse Monument, it's eight feet taller than the Washington Monument, and it's nine times larger than the faces of Mount Rushmore. This thing is massive. Zilkowski died in 1982, and since his death, the family has carried on their, their father's vision and continued the carving. I didn't also realize this, that that project is not really anywhere close to being done. They, it is, has a completion date, estimated date, of, 2000, of the year 2050, just shy of the 100-year mark. Think about that, 100 years devoted to one task. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's kind of crazy to think that we would spend a hundred years on one task. It's even harder to imagine that if Crazy Horse is completed by, by the year 2050, it would still fall 20 years short of how long it took Noah to build the ark. Noah's ark, ranks that project, ranks as one of history's largest and longest construction projects ever. How many of you have been to the, uh, to the Noah's ark, the, the ark experience in northern Kentucky? Have you seen it? Okay, so if you've been up there, you have a little bit better idea of, of how massive that, that boat actually is. But, but I think we often fail to appreciate it for what it really is. A really big boat built a really long time ago. The, the ark measured 300 cubits in length, 50 cubits in width, and 30 cubits in height. In the Hebrew system of, of measurement, a, a cubit was equivalent of 17 and a half inches. That means that the ark was the length of one and a half football fields. Think about that. One and a half football fields. That, that's how big this boat is. Not until the late 19th century did a ship that size get constructed again. And yet that 35-3 design ratio that the Ark had, it's still considered the golden, the golden ratio for, for ships when, for, and stability during, during rocky seas. That, that's, what, that's the ratio you want. The, the internal volume of the Ark was 1,518,750,000 cubic feet, the equivalent of 569 boxcars. If the average animal was the size of a sheep, the ark had capacity for 125,000 animals. Now, let's put that in perspective. There's roughly, if you've been to the Louisville Zoo, there's roughly 1,100 animals at the Louisville Zoo. So that means that you could fit 113 Louisville Zoos on board Noah's Ark. That's a lot of animals. Building the Ark required a, a rare combination of, of brains and brawn. It, it took Mensa amounts of creative genius. After all, it was the first boat ever built, and it's not like it came with an instruction manual. I mean, God told him how to build it, but there wasn't any written instructions for it. But it was also backbreaking work. It took buckets of blood and sweat and tears. But even more than brains and brawn, it took an incalculable amount of faith for Noah to build this boat. In Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, we read this about Noah. It says, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Think about that. Who builds an ark in the middle of a desert? Who builds a boat in the middle of a desert? Who hammers away at something for 120 years for something that they might not even need? Who banks their entire future on something that has never happened before? 
According to the Jewish tradition, Noah didn't just start by building the ark. He, he planted trees first, and after they were fully grown, then he cut down the trees and he sawed them into planks, and, and then he built a boat. And I think, you know, I don't know if that's true or not. That's just Jewish tradition, but, but that really uh, fits the T of, of, of what it looks like for going all in for God. That's what going all in is, is really all about. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It, it doesn't seek 15 minutes of fame. Instead, it seeks eternal glory. It doesn't, it doesn't care about public opinion. It seeks the applause of nail-scarred hands. Toward the end of his life, Korzak Zilkowski articulated his artistic zeal to those who would question why he would devote his entire life to one task. And he simply said this. He said, when your life is over, the world will ask only one question. Did you do what you were supposed to do? Did you do what you're supposed to do? And that's not just a good question. That's the question. That's the question. Did you do what you're supposed to do? And it can't be answered with words. It really can't. It has to be answered with your life. It has to be answered with your actions. Noah built the ark because God commanded him to do it. It was what he was supposed to do. Sawing planks and hammering nails weren't just a function of the job it was an act of obedience when, when everything was said and done it was the longest active uh, obedience longest act of obedience recorded in all of scripture from start to finish noah's one act of obedience took forty three thousand eight hundred days forty three thousand eight hundred days for one act of obedience noah did that because that's what he was supposed to do what are you supposed to do what are you supposed to do? Think about that. I, I really want you to think about that for a couple minutes. What are you supposed to do? I know that I'm supposed to preach. I am supposed to preach. Um, that when I was 16, 17 years old, that's where I felt really God's call uh, to, to ministry on my life. But my mom would tell you that she knew from the time I was three years old that I was going to preach. Um, because on Saturday mornings, now this will be different for a lot of generations, but Saturday mornings were typically cartoons. And then at my house, it was cartoons and wrestling. WWF TV came on and Memphis wrestling was on. And so that, that's what it was. And after Memphis wrestling, after Jerry the King Lawler, was Jimmy Swaggart. That's just what came on the channel. I, don't, I didn't do the programming. That's just what came on the, on the channel after that. And so when Jimmy Swaggart would come on TV, and maybe this is where some of my emotionalism comes from, uh, I would get out the vacuum cleaner and I would stand on the couch and I would use the handle of the vacuum cleaner as my microphone and when Jimmy would, when Jimmy would start preaching, I'd start preaching and when Jimmy would get real loud, I'd get real loud and Jimmy start crying, I'd start crying and so my mom said from the time I was three years old, she knew that I was going to preach. What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? Church, what are we supposed to do? What's our mission? What's our mission? Yeah, leading people to love and follow Jesus. That's what we're supposed to do. But, but what about as an individual? How do we, as in our individual lives, lead people to love and follow Jesus? Because I'm telling you, if we, if we only think that we do that here, if we only think that we do that collectively, that it doesn't affect our Monday through Saturday life, we are missing the boat, so to speak. We are, we are called to lead people to love and follow Jesus. So how do you do that? What are you supposed to do? And look, that's going to look different for everybody. Bobby's call on his life is, is student ministry. I've known Bobby for maybe 15 years, we'll say, close to that. And, and from the time I've known Bobby, he's been involved in student ministry, and that's his passion. He loves students. 
He loves to see students learn and grow and, and, and disciple them. That's his passion. That's what he's supposed to do. But what about you? What are you supposed to do? I don't know what went through Noah's mind when God told him to build a boat. I'm guessing it was either, you got to be kidding me, really, a boat? What's a boat? Like, what? Noah didn't even have a cognitive category for what God was calling him to build. It was absolutely unprecedented. And yet Noah obeyed every jot and tittle of revelation that God gave him. Genesis 6.22 says Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I don't know about you, but typically I find myself in my life, I want God to reveal that second step before I take the first step of faith. I, I want to know what's coming around the bend before I go around the bend. That's, that's kind of how I operate my life, and I think that's how probably most of us operate. But, but here's what I think is true, is that if I don't take that first step of faith, God generally won't reveal the next step. We, we've got to be obedient to the measure of revelation that God has given us if we want more of that. And I think that's where we get stuck spiritually. We, we want more revelation before we obey more. But God wants more obedience before he reveals more. Did you catch that? God wants us to, to be obedient. Anybody seen the movie Indiana Jones? I'm sure you have. And, and there's a scene in, in the movie where he, Indiana Jones has got to go across this bridge. But it's not a bridge there. And it's a, so it's, it's, he's got to take this step. And he figures out that if he just takes the step, the bridge will appear. And he does. And so he has to, he has to take this faith. He has to, the, the next step will appear only when he takes that step. And that's how I think God works a lot for us is we, we got to, God will reveal more when we're obedient more. Most of us will only follow Christ to the point of precedence. That, that is the place that most of us have been before, but, but no further. We're, we're afraid of doing something that we've never done before because it's unfamiliar territory. So we leave unclaimed new gifts and new anointings, new dreams that God wants to give to us. Look, if you want to do something new, you can't keep doing what you've always done. We got to push past the fear of the unknown. We got to we got to leave familiarity. We got to do something different. We got to take a risk every now and then. Since Noah was the first zoologist, uh, I feel it's appropriate to give you an animal illustration here. Anybody ever seen an African impala? You might have seen one at a zoo before. They are well known for their remarkable leaping ability. They can jump 10 feet high and 30 feet long. So think about that. They jump 10 feet high, 30 feet long. So you think that's an impressive animal that can jump like that. And so you would think it would be pretty difficult for zookeepers to keep them in their enclosures. But it's really not. It's not that difficult at all. In fact, it's real simple. A three-foot wall will do the trick. Because here's the thing, an impala will not jump if it cannot see where it will land. I think we have the same problem a lot of times. We want a money-back guarantee before we take a step of obedience. But that leaves faith out, doesn't it? It eliminates faith. So, sometimes we need to take that flying leap of faith. Sometimes we need to step into conflict not knowing whether or not we can resolve it. We need to, we need to share our faith with our friends without knowing how they're going to react to it. We need to pray for a miracle without knowing how God will answer we need to put ourselves in a situation that, that activates a spiritual gift that, that we've never exercised before. We need to go after a dream that is destined to fail without divine intervention. Look, if we want to discover new lands, if we want to discover new things, then we have to lose sight of the shore. We've got to leave 
familiarity behind. We've got to sail past the predictable. And when we do that, we develop a spiritual hunger for the unprecedented. And we lose our appetite for the habitual. If I'm real honest with you, I think one of the, one of the things that maybe I most enjoyed about our COVID era was the fact that everything was unprecedented. And so everything was fair game. You, it, it gave us an opportunity to try new things and, and to maybe challenge the status quo and do something different. The, the, the rules of engagement changed. And so because, because it was different, everything, everything was new. And honestly, it was kind of fun. It was. It, it was kind of fun. I'll never forget the, the first Sunday that we did online only. And there's a picture floating around somewhere of, of me and Bobby and Tim and Chelsea. And we're just, we're trying to figure out how to get this thing to work. How to, how to make a live stream go. And so, so we've got a, the communion tables here. And it's got a tripod sitting on it. And there's a phone on it. Uh, and that's what we're live streaming with. We've got a TV here. And, and it really was just a makeshift studio. But I'm telling you, because it was new, it, was, it wasn't normal. It was, it, it it created a, an appetite within us that, like, hey, this is something different. This is something that could be really effective. And I think as a church, sometimes we need that mentality. We need to regain that mentality. We need to think, hey, just because this is what we've always done doesn't mean this is what we always have to do. Just because something worked 50 years ago doesn't mean it works now. And on the flip side, something that worked 50 years ago might work again. And so sometimes what is old is new again. And you've got to be willing to, to try something again. Maybe it didn't work like you thought it would the first time, so you, but, but you make some changes and you go back. But all I'm getting at is that, that when we get in this routine, and I think this is what we do on Sunday mornings, we have this, we have this routine that we, you, know, you get up, you get dressed, you, you come to Sunday school, you go to your class, you go downstairs, you get a cup of coffee, you get a donut, and you come in here, we sit in the pew, we sing a few songs, you hear a message, and then we go home. And that's our routine. And it doesn't get more than routine. It's when, when the habitual just becomes that habitual, it's time to change things up. And I think more than anything else, the change comes with attitude. It comes with what we're expecting to happen. We, we, we come in and we expect nothing to happen, and so nothing happens. But when we come in and we expect something to happen, I think God moves. I think God honors that. Noah expected that it was going to rain. So he built a boat. But even if it didn't rain, I think God would have still rewarded his obedience because he was faithful to it. Noah, Genesis 6, 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord in a time of great wickedness. And when, when great wickedness was prevalent on the earth, one man stood out. The, the favor of God is what God can do for you that you can't do for yourself. It, it's God's favor that opens up the door of opportunity for us. It's his favor that turns opposition into support. It's his favor that can help you land the promotion to, to make the list, seal the deal, so to speak. I tell you, I pray for the favor of God as much as I pray for anything else. I, I, I pray for the favor of God to be on our church. I pray for God's favor to be on me. I pray for it to be on my wife and, and my kids. I pray on my kids based on Luke 2.52 where, where it says, may you grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. And parents, that's, that's something I think we all ought to pray for our kids. So how do you find favor? How do you find God's favor? How did Noah find God's favor? Well, the, the real sh simple, short answer is obedience. It's obedience. Uh, it starts by surrendering our lives to the lordship of Jesus. 
Jesus proclaimed the favor of God in his very first sermon, and then he sealed the deal with his death and, and his resurrection. Favor is a function of surrender. If we don't hold out on God, God won't hold out on us. But we have to surrender if we want God's favor. We position ourselves for the favor of God by, by walking in humility and in purity. Every promise is a yes in Christ, and every spiritual blessing becomes our birthright. And if we're willing to consecrate ourselves to Him, if we're willing to set ourselves apart for Him, His favor becomes our vanguard and, and our rear guard. In, in one respect, all we need is the favor of God found at the foot of the cross. And let me just tell you, if that's the only favor that we ever found in God, that we found of God, that would be enough. But the favor of God is not limited to the spiritual realm. His favor extends into the material realm as well. And in Noah's life, it, it translated into to ingenious inventions. Noah, Noah was the Leonardo da Vinci, the Thomas Edison of his era. Noah didn't just build the, the first boat and pioneer the shipbuilding industry, but according to Jewish tradition, he invented the plow and the scythe and the hoe and, and a number of other implements used in cultivating the ground. The favor of God for Noah translated into God ideas. One of my all-time favorite movie lines from one of my all-time favorite movies from the 1989 movie Field of Dreams. And you all probably already know the line. It's the most famous line in the movie. But in that movie, Kevin Costner plays the role of a farmer and a baseball lover named Ray Kinsella. And while walking through a cornfield, his cornfield, he hears this faint whisper, if you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. And Ray literally bets the farm and builds a baseball diamond in the middle of his cornfield. And after a lot of soul searching, a lot of penny pinching, the ghosts of baseball past mysteriously show up and they play baseball. I'll be honest with you right now. I don't know in this moment what our, if, what our church, what our if you build it, they will come moment looks like. But I know this. I am absolutely confident in this. That if we're willing to be faithful and to be obedient, to, to then whatever dream or vision that we come up with that honors God and honors God's kingdom, God will make a way possible for that to happen. He will make a way possible for it. And the reality is, is that dream, that vision, whatever it is that we end up coming up with, it might look foolish from the outset. From the outset. I mean, because here's, here's what I'm going to tell you, that I, I'm praying that our vision for our church is, is much bigger than any of us really imagined. That, that it's so big that we say, you know, only God could really accomplish that. Because that's what I want our church to be. The, a church that only God could make this happen. Because then God gets all the credit, right? And so from the outset, it might look foolish. But faithfulness is a willingness to look foolish. Noah looked foolish building an ark in the desert, didn't he? Sarah looked foolish buying maternity clothes at age 90. Moses looked foolish asking Pharaoh to let his slaves go. The Israelite army looked foolish marching around Jericho blowing trumpets. David looked foolish for attacking Goliath with a slingshot. The wise men looked foolish following a star uh, from Timbuktu. Peter looked foolish stepping out of a boat in the middle of the night. Jesus looked foolish hanging half naked on a cross. But the results, the, the results speak for themselves, don't they? Noah stayed afloat. Sarah gave birth to Isaac. Moses delivered Israel out of Egypt. The walls of Jericho came tumbling down. David slayed Goliath. The wise men found the Messiah. Peter walked on water and Jesus rose from the dead. If you aren't willing to look foolish, you're foolish. 
And that's why so many people have never built an ark or they've never slayed a giant or they've never walked on water. It's why so many churches are stuck spiritually. They're just stuck in the middle of doing what they've always done because they're never willing to look foolish. They're never willing to take a chance. They're never willing to do something different. And I'm just telling you, as a church, if we're going to be the church, if we're going to be the community center for this community, if we're going to be the influence and the impact that we want to have on this community and what's coming to our community, then we got to be willing to take some chances. we got to be willing to take some risks. we got to be willing to, to build an ark or at the very least plant some trees and saw some planks. we got to start being obedient to what God has called us to do. I love the story of the farmers who who gathered to pray during a drought in the Mississippi uh, Delta area. Dozens of farmers showed up to pray. It hadn't rained in months. Crops were, were dying. It looked like it was just going to be a terrible financial disaster for, for the whole community. And all of these farmers, they, they gathered to pray, and they all came wearing their traditional overalls, except for one farmer. He showed up wearing waders. He got a few funny looks. I imagine just like Noah did when he's building his boat. But isn't that faith at its finest? If you genuinely believe that God is going to answer your prayer for rain, isn't that exactly how you would dress? Isn't that exactly what you would wear? Why not dress for the miracle? I love the faith of that seasoned farmer. He simply said, I don't want to walk home wet. But everybody else did. And I can't help but wonder if that one act of faith is what sealed the miracle. I don't know for sure, but I do know this. That faith is acting as if God has already answered. Faith is acting as if God has already answered. And acting as if God has answered means, means acting on our prayers. Even if it takes 120 years. Even if it takes 120 years. We don't really stop to think about what life on the ark was like, do we? But I think it's safe to say that Noah probably didn't get a whole lot of sleep. Uh, he, he was feeding and cleaning and caring for thousands of animals around the clock. And can you imagine the smell? Like, I mean, you go to the zoo on a windy day, and you if you don't walk in the right direction, I mean, like, it, it can be a miserable day at the zoo. You just catch a whiff of all of that all the time. Did you know African elephants produce up to 80 pounds of waste a day? Yeah. It was smelly, and it was messy. And I think that's a pretty accurate picture of what obedience looks like. Obedience is hard work. And it gets harder. Look, the blessings of God will always complicate your life. They will. But unlike sin, they, they complicate your life in a way that it, they, it should be complicated. Getting married to Christy complicated my life. Yeah, very much so. But thank God for that, right? We have two incredible complications named Noah and Eli. And I can't imagine life uh, without those complications. And Glendale Christian Church is far more complicated now than it was in 1879. But no matter what vision God gives us, I can predict this. It will take longer and it will be harder than we ever imagined. But Noah offers us a little reality check, doesn't he? A decade sounds like a long time to patiently pursue a God-ordained passion, doesn't it? But if we think a decade's long, try 12 decades. It's amazing what God can do if you'll just keep hammering away for 120 years we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in a year but we underestimate what god can accomplish in a decade i hope 10 years from now we're able to look back and see what god has accomplished in our community look glendale will not look the same in 10 years whether you're for that against that 
It doesn't really matter. Glendale will not look the same in 10 years. But I want us to be, look, be able to look back and say, you know what, our church doesn't look the same as it did 10 years ago either. And because of our faith and because of our obedience, because we were willing to, to take a risk, because we were willing to step out in obedience, God has blessed and honored our church. I admire plotters, P-L-O-T-T-E-R-S. That's people who can, who can see into the future and cast a vision. But I think I admire plotters, P-L-O-D-D-E-R-S, a little bit more. People who put one foot in front of the other one day at a time. Going all in for God is not just about getting where God wants you to go. It's about who you become in the process. It's not about how quickly you get there either. It's about how far you go. Going all in is going the distance. It's crossing the finish line the, the same way that the Apostle Paul did when he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have remained faithful. At the end of your life, at the end of your life, how will you be able to answer the question, did I do what I was supposed to do? Did I do what I was supposed to do? Are we, as a church, going to be able to answer did we do what we were supposed to do? Did we lead people to love and follow Jesus? And if the answer to that is not yes, then man, we got some serious soul searching to do. We got some serious decisions to make, some serious changes to make. I think the answer is yes, we are leading people to love and follow Jesus, but I think here's the caveat to that. I think we can do more. We can do more. We can always do more, right? There, there's... There's a population increase coming. I've told you before, that, you know, they're, they're estimating 5,000 jobs out here at the Ford plant. That's, that's an incredible number. But think about it in this context. That's not 5,000 jobs. That's 5,000 families. Average family Ford. And look, I know it's not, not everybody's going to move into Glendale. Not going to move into Hardin County. But some will. But you take an average family Ford, that's 20,000 people. We don't, have to kid, we don't have to win them all. We're not going to win them all. But if we just connect with 1%, if we can just lead 1% of the people that come into our community to lead people to, to love and follow Jesus, that's an additional 200 people. What's that look like for us to have, to have another 200 people sitting in here with us on a Sunday morning? I think it makes it feel like district tournament time every Sunday where gyms are packed. And I'm glad you all aren't yelling at me like some of the fans have yelled at me this week, but, but I think it's that it creates that energy and that excitement every week. I want us to lead people to love and follow Jesus. And the only way that we will, we will be successful in that is if we're going to take chances, if we're going to act in obedience and act in faith, not knowing what's around the bend, but just being ready to get there to go where God calls us to go and to lead who God calls us to lead. At the end of your life, can you say, I did what I was supposed to do? Let me pray for us.